Welcome back to the Tobler Show. It's the second hour here so on Biden, uh, our Saturday morning uh, expose into all the things going on in the week. Leah's got a little clip I want to play for you because there's something that we, we want to unpack carefully, and that is about uh, illegal immigrants and their families um, perhaps having a, a serious um, settlement from the government um, with lots of lots of cash. It's like it's like a day with Oprah uh, for, for illegals uh, requesting asylum. But let's let's listen to this clip. Go ahead. According to the journal, the administration plans to, quote, offer immigrant families that were separated during the Trump administration around $450,000 a person in compensation. The U.S. Departments of Justice, Homeland Security, and Health and Human Services are considering payments that could amount to close to $1 million per family. A million dollars per family for illegal aliens at exactly the moment that American families are becoming noticeably poorer by the day. Well, this is uh, this is very troubling. Apparently, the American Civil Liberties Union, of course, the the leftist of left organizations, which in its better day, in its heyday, was formed to maintain and protect our liberties against tyranny from a central government. And to protect us to from, you know, the concentration of power. And now they're defending illegals. And I think what's happening here is that these people, this was part of the zero tolerance enforcement policy. This was reported first in the Wall Street Journal this last Thursday. As part of a so-called zero tolerance enforcement policy, the agents under the Trump administration separated children ranging from infants to teenagers from their parents at the southern border. This was in 2018, after they'd crossed illegally from Mexico to seek asylum in the U.S. Now, in some cases, families were forcefully broken up with with no provisions to track and later reunite them, according to a government investigation. And now the lawsuits coming from the ACLU, this would be the American Communist Legal Union, uh, I'm sorry, the American Civil Liberties Union, The lawsuits allege some of the children suffered from a range of ailments, including heat exhaustion and malnutrition, were kept in freezing cold rooms, provided little medical attention. Many of the lawsuits describe lasting mental health problems for the children for the trauma of the months without their parents in harsh conditions, um, so forth. The lawsuits seek a range of payouts, with the average demand being roughly $3.4 million. This is the demand. $3.4 million per family, some of the people said. Wow. Uh, uh, Rarely am I speechless, but this almost leaves me speechless. I tweeted, boy, did I get myself into a Twitter storm, Leah. Leah's in for Max this morning. Say hi to Leah. Hi, Leah. Hey. Uh, This is unbelievable. I got into a Twitter storm, and there were, of course, many, many uh, bleeding heart liberal tweeters saying, oh, it's about time. This is, you know, that was outrageous. Treating these children like animals. How could you separate a child from its parent? And I simply tweeted, being the provocateur I occasionally am on Twitter, at Randy Tobler, MD. I try not to be provocateur on purpose. I'm just trying to point out sort of my, the, the, the consequences of the behavior or the misjudgment that is involved in the, twit, the tweet to which I am responding. 
And all I said was perhaps it is best for children to be separated from parents who instill in them through their modeling behavior that breaking the law is okay. Oh boy. One guy said, among the many, I don't know, it was some snarky word, among the many ill-informed, naive, stupid, and hateful tweets on this thread, this is the worst. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, there's this there's this organization called DFS. <laughs> and if a child is living in a, you know, in a trailer with feces and cockroaches and, you know, the gas stove is on but not lit, and the propane spilling out, and I, I'm aware of that. I know one of my very close friends is is a juvenile officer. The the squalor and the the unseemly circumstances that so many children live in, sadly, in Missouri and across this country. Um, the best thing you can do is get them away from their parents. Yeah. And I don't know parents who think it's illegal to go in the shadows and not come back as 80 plus percent, according to the Center for Immigration Studies and other bona fide organizations who have done this research, say they, they're given this, this little, uh, you know, hall pass. Oh, okay, you know, catch and release. Go ahead, go into the country and make sure you come back on the 5th of July, the day after the 4th of July, and you enjoyed the, enjoyed the free community fireworks while you're here illegally. And, uh, you know, come back for your sentence, for your hearing. They don't come back. Now, I'm going to, well, should I ask Erica Komisar about that? She, she may disown me. She may never be my friend again. I just, and of course, I was being a bit hyperbolic when I put that on the Twitter. Of course, children should be with their parents. You've heard me say more than once that the worst thing we can do in this country is continue to provide parenting through the swamp in D.C. with handouts, with welfare. Parents should learn to live to their vows and stay together for the sake of the family and the kids and should live that that nuclear family life, which is, I think, any reasonable and honest anthropologist, philosopher, psychologist, you name it, would say that's always the best for a kid. And we know the social science says that, too. Children raised in single-parent family, uh, the single-parent families, they, they can succeed. They often do very well. But statistically, Children stand a much better chance of graduating high school, staying out of jail, being successful, self-sufficient, and on and on if they're raised in a nuclear family. So, you know, that got me into a little trouble. But I mean, so now the government is going to apparently negotiate a settlement with these families. And I, I imagine the amounts probably range from 450K to a million based on how many children are involved. But I guess what I don't know, and if there's any attorneys in the in the audience, I'd like I'd like you to call me 314-912-1019 who, who know a little bit about the law, the immigration law, because I sense I fear. Yes, I fear that actually. The if you interpret the law strictly, my sense is the insane immigration laws that we have in this country somehow somehow can be twisted to say yes i stepped across the border illegally but wink wink um my family was being hunted by a cartel drug you know kingpin in colombia and therefore i deserve asylum and i'll bet there's some kind of an exception in the law that says well now that's an asylum seeker and they need to be you know come on in as bob barker would say or come on down 
And so, you know, at that point, we know that there are elements, there are legal people in our world, there are people who go down and coach people at the border what to say so that they adhere to the letter of the law and therefore can get through the system. So it may be, it may be quote, legal, and maybe that's the problem here. Maybe that's the, the theory on which these suits are being filed, that, you know, well, these people claimed asylum. You separated them. Shame on you. You disobeyed, you know, you broke your own law, America. It's you that's the lawbreaker. If that's the case, then we need to change the law. I mean, to me, it's like you can knock on our door as Trump had established, knock on our door at the border, but stay on the Mexican side of the entryway. <laughs> and yes, we have ways of you can apply for asylum. You're on your own, you know, cognizance there. But then recognizance, but then, you know, we'll let you know. We'll like that guy at the Wizard of Oz. Remember the Wizard of Oz, the scene when the guy, uh, when Dorothy is knocking at the door and he opens up the little door and says, what do you want? Remember at well, that's the way our border should be. Oh, I just hear looking for the wizard. That's what it should be. Not you bust through the door and you say, well, now I'm claiming asylum. So I'm on this side of the door. You can't throw me out because the law says once I say that magic A word, <laughs> I'm in. And it may be that that's some kind of a legal technicality that the ACLU thinks that they have something. And the reason the administration is negotiating with them. I, I don't know, but it this is absurd. And it, it, if the law somehow strictly interpreted says that, yeah, these kids shouldn't have been separated because the family, the head of the family claimed that, they, you know, this, this was asylum, whatever. We need to change the law to say, no, wait until the guy in the green hat peers through the opening in the door and you can stay on the other side of it. You know, if you don't, you know, I used to think it was a little bit trite and simple when Donald Trump said, without a border, you don't have a country. Well, that's right. And without a common language, you don't have a country. Isn't that curious? You know, I think about the how now the Biden administration is always touting the left will always tout socialist countries in Europe as their as their example that we need to follow. Right. Whenever it's a policy, whether it's green policy or on and on. And, and it's funny how a very nationalistic sense exists in Europe where there are common languages. You are expected if you're in, you know, if you're in Italy, the language is Italian, right? If you, it's not like, well, we're going to, you know, everything, we're going to mandate that you, if you're a public entity, you need to have, you know, press one for Spanish, press two for, you know, Hungarian, press three for Russian, press four for Chinese. How long is it going to be by now, now that the Chinese own half of America, it seems like they're investing in us like crazy. Bill Gates owns one half of the farmland and the Chinese are going to own the rest of the country. You know, he's investing in a lot of farmland. He's buying farmland like crazy. Did you know that? Yep. And, uh, you know, but if you, do, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. If you don't have a common language, you don't have a country. If you don't have, you know, common ideals, you don't have a country. This is what troubles me. Where are our common ideals? We've gone from, it's one thing to say, hey, I respect that, you know, Mr. and Mr. Buttigieg want to raise a child. Uh, okay, I respect that. I disagree with it. I think the data would say that a child needs a mom and a dad to have the best likelihood because dads bring different things to the parenting table than moms do. I mean, you can look at 
gorilla tribes or look at human tribes. It's sort of the same, right? I mean, there's there's a common thread here. We have a pair, Leah, we have a pair of nesting eagles, bald eagles at the Liberty Lair from which I broadcast. Wow. And I'm looking over the lake that we entitled Lake Liberty, you might say. <laughs> and across the lake are the, and the last time I checked, a mating pair of eagles are a male and female eagle. Best chance for a baby eagle to A, be birthed, hatched, and B, be nurtured. I'm just saying. Makes sense. But but that doesn't mean that we, that we don't give, you know, there may be some, you know, species that occasionally, you know, sort of are, um, you know, have like earthworms. Earthworms are both male and female, you know. They have both, both, both sets. They do that kind of thing okay but that's not the norm that doesn't mean we denigrate it we just recognize it as out of the mainstream and now these days we now celebrate anything out of the norm as being more normal oh well let's get aside here and talk about uh, one of my favorite people parenting coach author and psychoanalyst um erica Komisar, who's coming out with a new book and any of you who are raising uh or many be going through adolescence it's a, it's a good read uh, it's called chicken little the sky isn't falling it's about raising adolescence and you may not know this leah but um apparently adolescence now extends all the way into the mid-20s because the, re- the, the 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 brain isn't fully developed then so we'll step aside talk to erica and uh, be right back after this if you have any parenting questions or want to maybe tell someone else about what uh, what's going on please tell them to turn on 1019-941 or you know stream us on newstalkstl.com be right back on the tobler show welcome home welcome back to a rainy saturday morning randy tobler show here and it's great to be with you thanks for being with me hope that uh your Halloween weekend will be fun if the little kids or your grandkids are getting dressed up and getting all excited. It's always fun to watch their their excitement and joy, the wonder of a child. You know, um, we, I always love talking about kids and raising them when we talk with our guest, Erica Komisar, because she gets it so right in everything she says and does and on her website and in the Wall Street Journal and on TV and now in her second book, which I guess Erica is going to be released on Tuesday, right? Chicken yes. Little, the sky isn't falling. Is that right? It is. Yep, Tuesday. Really exciting, and I was uh, I was so so much a pleasure to be on your virtual book launch uh, well, a few weeks ago. It was a lot of fun, and um, uh, you held forth with a lot of really very nice Q and A there, and it was great because you know I, I asked like, well, what about grandparents? You know, how are we supposed to manage raising adolescents, which is probably one of the most difficult it makes rocket science look pretty easy actually um one of the most difficult things and that's what you tackle in your book and i think for whether you're a parent or a grandparent uh dealing with you know that adolescence wow you've got to pick this book up and uh the release is tuesday and of course that follows on the heels of erica's first book um being there why motherhood matters of you know the first three years of life a very very uh, seminal book so can we can we start out asking uh, you a little bit about um about the the neuroscience behind adolescence and the fact that it isn't just those teen years i was i was startled to find out how long that period really lasts erica is fascinating mm-hmm. it begins earlier and ends later and we only know this really since the 90s what we call the decade of the brain was the 90s because we had the technology to actually see the brain um, and what we know is that um adolescents really have a lot going on. It's the second critical window of brain development other than zero to three when the brain is sort of reorganizing and pruning 
all of the, uh, the, 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 the neurons that it's developed over the first nine years. Um, but, but the most important thing for parents and grandparents to understand is how that brain development affects adolescents' behavior. Because what's often thought of as discipline issues or, um, you know, the, my adolescent doesn't respect me or doesn't listen to me. And so this book really gives parents and grandparents a lot of information so they don't so they can have more empathy really and understand and be more patient uh, with their adolescent um, there's something called asymmetrical adolescent brain development which is um, that the reward and threat sensing parts of the brain are developing more quickly than the emotional regulation parts of the brain and mm-hmm. that leads to things like more novelty seeking more risk taking more self-consciousness more sensitive they're more sensitive to criticism and, and more intense reactions to stimulation. And it's really interesting then how you weave that basic science in a very understandable way, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. This isn't like a, a, a medical student, you know, neuroscience textbook. It, it, it really just describes the basics and then how that translates then to the way we relate to our children and, and how we help them get through, which is like navigating, you know, you know Mount Everest. It's tough. Um, but... What's interesting is that how those formative years, I, I got to tell you a story because I find it interesting and it's a positive story, but it maybe I was just going to ask you whether I'm thinking clearly here. My son spent his fifth year of college in Stuttgart, Germany, because he was a double major in German and international business. Mm-hmm. And he was the first uh, one over there. He got some kind of a scholarship from the province. And then, you know, that's an engineering town. But here he was in business and sort of had to create his own curriculum. But he was, uh, big air finger quotes, adopted by a, a family over there, a wonderful family, the Protochills, and, um, and had a, and developed friendships. So we visited him. And you could just tell this... What what are you in your fifth year of college? 21, 22-ish? I don't know. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, maybe 22-ish. And so now fast forward nine years and he's now working for an international company that actually produces some of the printing presses that um, produce some of our currency and currencies around the world. So he spends a lot of time in Austria and Switzerland. He sent us, he hadn't been there in a while, he sent us all the family thread, sent us a picture and said, I'm drawn to this place. It was overlooking Austria or Switzerland, I don't know, somewhere where he'd spent a lot of time at that stage of his life. And it just, every time he communicates with us over there, it is like that is that is his nirvana. <laughs> Despite mm-hmm. living in Chicago first and now Arlington, Virginia and having a great life and everything's going well in terms of how Americans define things going well, you know, you know, reasonable monetary success and all the things of life and a great marriage. But isn't it interesting at that formative time? So I pulled this on and I said, well, my friend and counselor here on the air, she doesn't charge mm-hmm. me. Um, Erica Komisar says that you're why I, I, I said, I think Erica would say, well, that's when a lot of very important things were being wired in your brain because like most kids he was a little late to develop in terms of responsible behavior and executive function with that you know prefrontal cortex and I I couldn't help but think there's maybe a relationship to what you're talking about as to how things are hardwired and developed and 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 um, important um, um, constructs in a child's mind and being are created am I overcalling it or is there some truth to that no you're not so we call them the two critical windows of brain development because the brain is most sensitive to the environment and your son was in an environment that was stimulating to him and pleasurable to him and so it, it you're right it sort of marked something in his brain and 
and we are the environment. So the book yeah. is really a book about how you as parents are their environment and you still have a tremendous impact on their future in terms of how they regulate their emotions and how resilient they are to stress and how emotionally secure they feel in life. Yeah. And and so it was interesting. And, and I think about also, you know, the other element that occurred then it was probably the most challenging and demanding time in terms of a young man in a foreign place. Yeah, he spoke the language and did it pretty well, but pretty much had to forge his own path. So at the same time that he was having these social connections, which of course are so important, he also was having the challenge and was meeting the challenge. And boy, you talk about the secret sauce. I mean, it was really remarkable to see that young man grow up. The, the relative growth in his maturity in that year eclipsed the four or five years before it i mean it's amazing how that happened and mm. it was just really fun to watch so and and i guess it's because he had a supportive family there and a supportive family back home and um it was just really neat so i thought it was an instructive thing and it's those kind of stories that you tell out of your own practice uh and your observations over your years of counseling because you are a, a you know a clinical you know counselor and psychologist psychoanalyst and so you do this on you know not only do you write but you also treat people so mm-hmm. it's just fascinating and by the way folks you can watch erica's uh, has a lot of youtube videos and lots of great coaching my daughter is your biggest fan as she raises her little ones um so now Let's switch to the first, I think it's the first chapter of your book, or maybe one of the first, is about the age of anxiety, right? And you, mm-hmm. you that sets the table. And I, mm-hmm. I heard uh, Bill Maher last night say, I'm done with the pandemic. I'm done with the, you know, I'm a better person because I mask, or I'm a lesser, you're not a good person because you didn't get vaccinated enough. Bill Maher, of all people, on real time says, hey, guys, we're ruining ourselves socially. we got to get back to life. And this has been a very tough time for adolescents, hasn't it, to try to cope with the pandemic and everything. So, can you talk about that and how that extra layer of challenge plays into the usual challenges of, of, of adolescents and adolescent rearing? Well, as you say, adolescence, I always say adolescence is a trauma under healthy circumstances, right? So things like puberty and the shifting social scene and separating from parents and identity formation, um, it, it's, it's hard even if everything goes well. Um, and because of COVID, I think it intensified or amplified things that are not going well in society and some of the things that were causing this age of anxiety before COVID, things like increased academic pressure and pressure on kids to be perfect and be high achieving and have material success and really know their know themselves while they're still developing. I mean, really, we're expecting our kids to be fully developed before they're developed, you know, um, to be exceptional in some field or or to to have their own business or start their own nonprofit when they're 16. I mean, things that we never expected before. There's more competition, more choices, more sensory overload, social media. I write a lot um, in mm-hmm. in the newspapers about social media and the influence um, and how, how bad of an influence it is on our kids. Um, so, you know, we have so many things going on, and what COVID did is it amplified them. Um, and what we know is that young children who may have benefited from COVID because their parents were more around them. Um, adolescents really need a little bit of separation from their parents to sort of experiment and try out being on their own. It's how they sort of separate from us. They need to lean into their peer group or their friends. And during COVID, they weren't spending as much 
much time with their friends. And it, what it did is it sort of held them in a place that was like a regressed place. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they had to mm-hmm. become like younger children at a time when they should have been spending more time outside the home. Um, it, it's not all bad. It also gave some parents an opportunity to repair things with some adolescents who they hadn't spent much time with before COVID. Um, so, it, you know, I wouldn't say COVID was all bad, but for adolescents, it probably leaned more into putting pressure on them to stay home rather than be out in the world and explore. So what I'm concerned about is, as these yet to be fully developed brains and judgment centers um, are coping with now let's call it newfound or refound freedom mm-hmm. i see a risk there and parents mm-hmm. and those who are responsible to keep them as jordan peterson says let them skateboard uh, and if they broke a bone that's okay but don't let them kill themselves mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and i think you and i have talked about that it's like you got to let kids be kids and you don't want to be too authoritarian and be like you know boots on their neck but isn't there some risk that kids are going to be like, wow, it's party time? And how do parents rein that in and sort of manage that without becoming the evil ogre? And then you've then you've lost whatever connections may have been made. That's why. How are we going to manage that? Well, what Jordan Peterson was saying is that you cannot change the fact that they're going through this intense period of development and it's brain development so as I said that asymmetrical brain development demands that they have experiences, they have novelty, they have some risk taking and what parents can do is make sure to find safer risk taking opportunities for kids Um, you know I always use this analogy if you step on a landmine you can't just take your foot off the landmine because then you know you'll blow up. You have to find Mm -hmm. a big rock to put on the landmine if you're going to pick up your foot. So if you think about the fact that you don't want them doing risk-taking things that are going to put their Mm -hmm. lives and health at risk. And so, you know, you find other kinds of things like skateboarding, like rock climbing, like snowboarding. I mean, it's why adolescents are always seeking these kind of slightly risk-taking mountain biking. Um, Mm -hmm. So you find things for them to do and you condone them in a supervised way, things that they can do that do have some risk but don't involve uh, life-threatening risk. Um, You also in my book I talk about the fact that your kids are going to experiment with things like alcohol and drugs. It's unrealistic to believe that they are not and what you want to do is um, to the best of your ability try to keep them from being exposed too early just like with social media I mean it is inevitable they're going to be exposed to social media you just want to see how long you can delay the exposure the later the better but, um, but they are going to be exposed at some point in mid to late adolescence to alcohol and drugs and the idea again is not to say you, you can't ever do these things because what you'll do is you'll create a barrier between you and them um, and they won't talk to you they won't open up to you um, and you want to keep that door open and you want to keep that door open so they can process their feelings and experiences but also ask questions and so it's really talking about consequences of things and mitigating risk and 
helping them to form the bridge that is absent in their brains during this period of brain development, which is executive functioning, right? As you said, executive functioning is part of the right brain or the prefrontal cortex, which isn't fully developed till 25. And that helps us to tie our actions to our consequences. So we have to be, as parents, their executive functioning and not resent it, right? And help them to understand that if you do this, this could happen. You know, if you're going to drink... You don't drink 12 shots of vodka Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you'll end up in the hospital with alcohol poisoning and you drink one shot and you wait to see how it feels and you have to wait some time before you have an effect because kids don't know that. So if they can't talk to you, um, and that's different than drinking with them. So I say to parents, you have to stay the parent um, and not, not be a child. You can't be their friend and their parent at the same time. But at the same time, you're there to help them understand actions also have consequences. And these are the consequences. Yeah, that is such sage advice because I, I know we made it uh, the mistakes. Every parent makes the mistakes of either being too heavy handed. It's like, if you do this, you're never going to play baseball again. And then there's other parents that say, you know, hey, come on over and have a party. I'd rather have you drink here than others and sort of endorsing it. And and I think both ends of that spectrum are, are, are wrong. But I think about adolescent and it, like you talked, you, you get separation if you're too authoritarian and expect them not to do risk-taking. And I guess it's sort of, as as this vaccine thing is is going on, I guess some of that behavior continues into adulthood, Erica. I mean, the more I've found that I've been unable to be convincing in terms of asking and convincing people to to use the vaccine, to take the vaccine, the the more heavy-handed you are, the, the more people dig their, their heels in. It seems to be a human trait, not just adolescents. I guess it's mm-hmm. it's more refined in adults, but you see it across the spectrum, don't you? Well, you can see adolescent behavior in adults and rebellious behavior. Rebellion yeah. against authority is adolescent yeah. behavior. Um, and there's, listen, there's a lot of suspicion and rebelliousness about authority. So you, you yeah. are right that if you come down too heavy-handed, you end up creating a rebellion sort of pushing away of authority. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have to ask you now, You, uh, I guess book tours these days are different than pre-pandemic, although we are emerging mm-hmm. from pandemic. Are you going to be making a... and speaking in, you know, bookstores and other venues, you know, libraries, or with your new book, Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, which is being released on Election Day? I, I don't know if that's fortuitous or planned, serendipitous or planned. Um, are you going to be doing virtual book tour? Where do where, where people stay in touch with you during the as you launch this? So I hope to do some traveling again with this book. Um, and I've certainly been doing a lot of virtual book tours mm-hmm. um, or, you know, book launch uh, events. But um, and they can reach me on www.comisar, K-O-M-I-S-A-R.com. And you can learn a lot about both of my books and buy my books on my website. Or you can also go to Amazon or any of the online bookstores mm-hmm. Uh, to buy both of my books and um, yeah. and yeah, yeah. and if and also to look into me speaking if you have a uh, an institution or a school or and you you want me to speak you can look into that on the website too well I mean there, there is no better parenting coach advice all the way from the cradle to uh, whatever was it 25 26 whatever that brain is yeah. mostly developed <laughs> uh, no better advice than uh, from our guest and my friend Erica Komisar Erica thank you so much for being with us have a great rest of your day and weekend thank you good Randy. luck with that book me. Thank good you. luck with the book all right okay. take care bye-bye
Well, there she is. It's super good. And um, it's such sound advice. You heard her say, that doesn't mean you drink with them. You're still the parent. And she gives very sound, great advice. I remember I saw a Wall Street Journal article that she wrote in 2019. I was going back and looking at some things. And she said, if your kids, uh, if you don't, if you're an atheist, if you don't believe in God and your kids are struggling with this or that, and they ask you about that because, you know, they're wondering what's it all about. <laughs> Lie. <laughs> because you have to have some structure and some either fascinating so she's practical on the one hand but also very grounded on the other hand uh i'm randy tobert that was erica Komasar, and leah's over in production she's going to be calling virginia cruda our next guest during the break as we talk get into some politics and budget and economy and joe biden's uh, the follies of joe right after this on news talk stl welcome home It's not just the issue of critical race theory either. It's about pornographic books being in these libraries for young children, parents reading them out loud and embarrassing school boards over it. They they wince. Well, what do you think the parents are doing? Um, Terry McAuliffe also keeps smearing parents by saying this is a racist dog whistle to bring up critical race theory. There are parents in Loudoun County and Fairfax County from all different backgrounds, including a woman who grew up in Mao's China, who have come up to these meetings to say, we don't want this in our schools. It is not just white parents who are living in suburbia going to these school board meetings. And finally, I would say it is not a good look for the Loudoun County School Board to be calling the sheriff's department and acting like these people are domestic terrorists, asking for all of these insane security measures, simply teeth them out from speaking uh, to them when they are taxpayer funded and have the right to be there. And so, you know, Terry McAuliffe thinks that insulting them is, is the way out of this when he should really be listening to them and their concerns. Well, he does need their votes. Whoever's going to win there has got to get those votes. Well, there's a, there's a little bit on the issue and how Terry McAuliffe's, I don't think we need to have uh, people speaking, to you know, determining what's going on in their schools. Uh, the, the, the quote that launched a thousand Yunkin victories, at least it appears that way in the polls. And we want to talk about that with Virginia Cruder, who's associate, associate editor at the Daily, Daily Caller. And you can stay in touch with her, of course, at Daily Caller, as well as at Vacruta, V-A. K-R-U-T-A on Twitter. How you doing, Virginia? Thanks for being with me. I I am doing well. And, I, you know, we joke about it all the time, but it took Vic, for, uh, Vic Porcelli forever to figure out that VA is just the abbreviation for Virginia. And that's, yeah. that's the beginning of my I, Twitter I, handle. <laughs> I figured that out. I love that. It's a very easily remembered uh, handle, Vacruta, right? And that's for Virginia. Yep, there so, you go. And, and here we are talking about Virginia and the politics there. And I don't know about you, Virginia, but it looks like in the last week or two, we've seen what may be a the canary in the coal mine for the Democrat fortunes. Uh, and that canary being the fortunes of Terry McAuliffe, because he has really exploded a, a topic and an issue that has leaped to the top. I mean, forget about vaccines and masks and the economy. It seems like it's all about parents and what their kids are, be t- kids are being taught. Well, you know, Greg Gutfeld said it best, I think. He said, if you want to red pill millions of Americans at once, call them all terrorists and send the FBI after them. You know, (laughs) honestly, I mean, it was a mistake for Terry McAuliffe to say what he said, but he might have been able to get away with it if it was in a vacuum because the media would have buried it and Mm -hmm. it would have been... Um, there would have been other things that came that bubbled to the surface that we would be talking about instead. But the reality is everything happened at once, and it was all of this targeted action against parents. And 
I, I tell you what, parents don't like being told that they don't matter in their kids, uh, their kids' development. And then you put on top of that when the National School Board Association, the parent organization for school boards across the country, you know, sends right. a letter essentially, you know, doubling down on that and really establishing, I think, crystallizing the whole notion of how somehow speaking out and vociferously, you know, opposing a curriculum uh, is somehow, you know, it makes you a domestic terrorist. Now, I think to be fair, and in fairness to Merrick Garland, uh, he's trying to 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 make a distinction between what he claims to be prosecuting and others. But, I mean, there's all kinds of jurisdictional issues and everything. I don't think any one of us, Virginia, and I talk about this a lot, none of us would endorse violent behavior or personal right. threats, right. right? That's absolutely, in, and that's a mistake that, that we make on the right. If it's not good for the left to have a BLM riot and break glass windows on the Magnificent exactly. Mile in Chicago, it's not right for us to do it either. But that's not what this is well, about, is it? No, no, it's not. And Merrick Garland, as much as he tried to distance himself from it during the hearing, the letter that he wrote listed the listed the things that parents could be prosecuted for doing and among those were harassment yep. and and that's not a threat of violence necessarily and the thing about right. harassment is it's, it's kind of a sticky thing because it's always defined by the person being harassed so if yes. a school board member gets a couple of phone calls and they don't like it all of a sudden that's harassment and yes. now the parents are being prosecuted under the Patriot Act or whatever he's got going on there. And so he didn't, you know, he didn't really talk about that much during the hearing. But, you know, he kept saying, well, it's only about violence and threats of violence. Well, no, no, because the letter you sent out includes harassment on the list. Right. Right. So and, and again, we were talking earlier be. about HR relations at work and how you can't even, you know, if if I if I if Virginia and I are co-workers at Company X and I comment on her nice uh, threads, you know, wow, nice outfit. If you determine that I harassed you, I'm in trouble. I'm being marched into HR and I have to watch some DIE videos. Right. And so it's the same kind of exactly. a thing. <laughs> so exactly. It's uh, yeah, it's too loose. Um so I in, in the latest Fox News poll, fifty three percent Yunkin among among likely voters, and forty five percent McAuliffe. And this is in I think everyone the the the, the left media tries to call Virginia a, a purple state. It's a blue state, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, or it has been in recent years. Now, it's not to say you know there aren't parts of the state that are very red. There really are, right? right. Um, but it has trended more toward. Because you have so many Washington, D.C. transplants who live in Northern Virginia now. And you have so many. And so the the, uh, the major cities and, and very increasingly the suburbs have been purple to blue for the last several years. And I, I don't know if you remember all of the all of the hubbub in Virginia a couple of years ago because the legislature was finally blue. And they were trying to push all those gun laws through really, really quickly um, in order to get them to pass. Yeah, and uh, right. Ralph Northam was kind of at the forefront of that. Yeah. Now, uh, we're talking with Virginia Kruta from the Daily Caller, associate editor there. Now, you uh, you had a piece just out the other day about uh, this, the big lie and the insurrection and the Democrats just can't 
just can't let it go. That seems to be the, the, the last hanging chad of any argument they have to try to hold on to any power in Washington. Uh, and again, but it amounts to demonizing a broad brushstroke of America, 99% of which, maybe 99.9% of which, if you talk about the people at the rally that day uh, on January 6th, had nothing to right. do with breaching the Capitol. And so why don't you unpack that for us a little bit? I think it was a great piece. Well, yeah, it, it, the idea is that Democrats cannot, it, it's, they just can't quit the cap, the Capitol riot. You know, they, they can't let it go because it will influence their ability to hold on to power because what they're doing um, right now, we have, we have a president who has no coattails and generally speaking, midterm elections are bad for the party in power anyway. So yeah, very rarely do you see, um, any party and Donald Trump lost people during the midterm election. Uh, President Obama lost a lot of people in 2014 and 2010. In fact, I think the most recent president in history to gain during a midterm election was George W. Bush, and that was right after 9 11. Um, mm-hmm. So it's very rare for that to happen because they say, oh, we elected this president who's not doing what I want. I don't care enough to go out to the midterm, or I'm actively going to vote against him. That's what you see. And, and so that they know, politically speaking, that's what's about to happen. And Joe Biden is doing so poorly that even if there were people who were, you know, excited about what he was doing, they're not going to go out and vote for him in, in, with, with his poll numbers doing this poorly. And so they need people to be mad enough. And that's the two ways to get people to vote are being excited about one candidate or being mad about another one. And they have to, in order to keep the power that they have or potentially gain more, they have to make sure that there are enough people who are who hate Republicans or who are worried about what will happen if more Republicans get elected, that they can get them out to the polls in 2022. And so that's what they're doing. They're saying they're saying not only and Don Lemon has done a really, really good job of this. You're right. And Virginia, I didn't allow enough time. And so that means you're going to have to become a regular friend and uh, contributor <laughs> to the show. And we'll do that if uh, if you're willing, because we're out of time. But that's sure. Virginia Cruder, Cruta, Daily Caller. Ta- stay in touch with her there and on Twitter at VA Cruta. Thanks so much, Virginia. Enjoyed being uh, having you on. Thank you. Going for some gas. Officially placed